I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by my colleague, Jason Sneed. Welcome to SCOTUS 101. It's great to be here for my rookie episode. <laughs> we'll go easy on you. <laughs> well, first, let's hit some of the SCOTUS headlines. Uh, on Monday of this week, while the remaining parts of the federal government that aren't shut down took a snow day, the Supreme Court met for oral arguments. Rain or shine, the justices are ready to proceed. I came across a funny story from the Rehnquist days. Uh, apparently in the in the mid-90s, D.C. got 21 inches of snow and the chief refused to cancel oral arguments. He was from Wisconsin, after all. And so uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist had jeeps sent out to pick up all of the justices. But Justice Souter, a New Englander, refused any help and insisted on driving himself to the court. He apparently got stuck in a snowbank and had to be rescued by the Supreme Court p- police. And of the nine members of the court, he was the only one who was late for argument that day. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of uh, shutdowns, our current partial government shutdown is the longest in history. Uh, Day 27 as we're sitting here in the studio and there is no end in sight, Um, at least insofar as the federal judiciary has been concerned, though, there's been a little bit of a bright spot for another week. They've been able to find a way to uh, keep the lights on and keep everybody (laughs) uh, paid for coming to work. But uh, there's always an end, and now it appears that January the 25th, the courts will uh, will finally run out of extra money and won't be able to pinch uh, pennies anymore. And so at that point, we're looking at uh, potential furloughs for judicial employees and, uh, of course, the requirement that some people uh, show up to work uh, without pay because the courts have to stay open, uh, which actually had me thinking, since we are a think tank, maybe we should try to come up with some creative alternative revenue sources for the federal courts. Yeah, maybe it could be take a selfie with a justice outside of the courtroom, of course, since cameras and, and phones aren't allowed inside. You know, I, I have to admit I'd stop at that selfie booth, uh, especially <laughs> if it had props, maybe uh, some old uh, English wigs, some gavels, that sort of a thing. Uh, you know, one other thing that they could do is they could just start selling tickets like it's a uh, ball game, right? Or maybe just some concessions. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but what would they do about scalpers? <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a, a ripe question, I'm sure. Uh, they could also... They could have some charity events, perhaps brews with Brett, uh, rum with Ruth, or maybe even grog with Gorsuch. You know, the uh, Internet truly being the provider of all things, I actually did find a rum-based cocktail uh, inspired by Justice Ginsburg called the uh, Ruth Bader Ginger Cocktail. So look that up (laughs) online. I have a feeling uh, my former co-host, Tiffany Bates, who is a ginger, I think she would love that cocktail. I think so. (laughs) Moving on to the court's recent orders and opinions, the court granted review in eight new cases. I'll mention a few that somewhat piqued my interest. The first is Rehoff versus United States, and I apologize if I did not pronounce that correctly. Uh, The issue is when the government prosecutes a non-citizen who's in the U.S. illegally for violating a federal law prohibiting him from having guns or ammunition, whether the government must show that the defendant knew he was in the country illegally or whether it's enough to show that the defendant knew that he had the guns or ammunition. So here, the non-citizen came to the U.S. on a student visa, but he had been dismissed from school, so he was no longer in the country legally. Uh, another case that the court's going to hear is Mitchell versus Wisconsin. This is a Fourth Amendment challenge to a Wisconsin law that allows police to draw blood from an unconscious driver without obtaining a warrant. 
There is still no word on a number of petitions that raise hot-button issues such as abortion, gun rights, and whether federal the federal laws prohibiting discrimination on the basis of sex and employment extend to LGBT employees. But at least we're going to have yet another uh, Fourth Amendment challenge to uh, warrantless blood draws. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, on the subject of uh, opinions that we got uh, handed down, there's a uh, new Prime Incorporated v. Uh, Oliveira, and I'm going to take my turn now to apologize if I have mispronounced a name there. This was a unanimous opinion by Justice Gorsuch, uh, though Justice Kavanaugh took no part in the decision. Uh, in it, the court held first that it is up to courts, not arbitrators, to determine whether the arbitration exemption for certain transportation workers in Section 1 of the Federal Arbitration Act applies to a dispute involving contracts of employment. And second that Mr. Oliveira's uh, operating agreement does indeed fall within that exemption. Uh, so Dominic Oliveira is, uh, or was a truck driver for an interstate trucking company uh, called New Prime Incorporated. And uh, he, like many other drivers for this company, was classified as an independent contractor, not an employee. And his operating agreement includes a mandatory, a mandatory arbitration clause. Oliveira filed a class action lawsuit alleging that the company had denied him and others their lawful wages, and New Prime moved to compel arbitration. But Section 1 of the Federal Arbitration Act specifies that it does not apply to, quote, contracts of employment of seamen, railroad employees, or any other classes of workers engaged in foreign or interstate commerce. After first holding that courts, not arbitrators, must consider whether this exemption applies, the court considered the meaning of the phrase contracts of employment. And in his opinion, Justice Gorsuch notes that in 1925, which is when the Arbitration Act was passed, the term contract of employment was not a term of art as it is today, and that employment and work tended to be treated as synonyms rather than referencing what we would think of in the modern era as a traditional employer-employee relationship. So with this in mind, and applying the fundamental canon of statutory construction that words generally should be uh, interpreted as taking their ordinary meaning at the time when Congress enacted that statute. The court held that the exemption covers any agreement, whether the worker be an employee or an independent contractor. So Oliveira's class action gets to proceed. So the, uh, the hashtag Gorsuch style returned to Twitter after this opinion came out. Uh, but this time the left is happy with the justice's outcome, uh, but still faulting Gorsuch uh, for his writing style and also for his, uh, as one article put it, his, quote, preoccupation with 1925 linguistics. Apparently judges should not be preoccupied with the text of a statute they're construing. That's what I take away from that. <laughs> <laughs> and cut a justice a break, I say. But, yeah. uh, uh, you know, it is worth pointing out that Justice Ginsburg did file a concurring opinion uh, in this case in which she uh, did say that while she agrees with the holding, she believes that words in statutes, quote, can enlarge or contract their scope as other changes in law or in the world require their application either to new instances or maybe make old applications uh, anachronistic. And so and so now. Uh, yeah, people are reading into this uh, that Justice Ginsburg is is ready to take on the issue of employment discrimination and whether. Uh, the ban on um, sex discrimination includes, in addition to actual sex or gender, whether it, it includes LGBT status as well. Uh, that may be reading a little bit much into it, 
uh, perhaps Justice Ginsburg, you know, from her hospital bed, just needed something to do and wanted to write a concurrence. Uh, but uh, we'll we'll see if the court ultimately ends up taking one of those cases. Yeah, maybe she was just bored in the hospital over the <laughs> snurlo. Who knows? Uh, but uh, going forward, you know, we're going to have to wait to see uh, what impact uh, this recent case, New Prime v. Oliveira, will have on other disputes that have cropped up uh, in recent years between drivers and uh, gig economy companies like Uber, Amazon, uh, or even Grubhub. Uh, all of these classify their drivers as independent contractors and frequently use mandatory arbitration clauses uh, in part to push back on legal efforts by these drivers to be reclassified as employees. So it remains to be seen uh, what, if any, impact this will have, but that's certainly something to keep an eye on. Definitely. The court also decided Stokeling versus United States. This was a 5-4 opinion written by Justice Clarence Thomas. It was an interesting lineup. Justice Breyer joined along with Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh uh, to join Justice Thomas's opinion, and the Chief Justice joined a dissent by Justice Sotomayor, so a bit of strange bedfellows in this lineup. Here, the court affirmed the lower court's ruling that the Armed Career Criminal Act's Elements Clause encompasses a robbery offense that requires the defendant to overcome the victim's resistance. So the Armed Career Criminal Act provides a mandatory minimum 15-year prison term for defendants who have three previous convictions, quote, for a violent felony, and the act defines uh, that as a crime that has as an element the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person of another. So the defendant here, Mr. Stokeling, argued that his state robbery conviction should not be considered a violent felony, urging the court to adopt a heightened standard of physical force that is, quote, reasonably expected to cause pain or injury. Uh, the court rejected that theory and instead relying on statutory and common law history. And in her dissent, uh, Justice Sotomayor, joined by uh, the Chief Justice and Ginsburg and Kagan as well, argued that the court had already decided this issue in Johnson versus United States back in 2010 when it determined that physical force in this particular statute does require a higher degree of force than the common law meaning of the words used in the statute. Well, maybe call me old-fashioned, but maybe just don't commit a robbery in the first place and save us all the time. <laughs> that, that would be one way to solve the problem. Uh, well, I recently spoke with Todd Gaziano from the Pacific Legal Foundation. Todd Gaziano is the Chief of Legal Policy and Strategic Research at the Pacific Legal Foundation, and I should note my former boss. Uh, Todd, welcome to SCOTUS 101. I'm so delighted that you would have me. So we've previously discussed the Nick case several times. For listeners who need a refresher, this is the case where a local government is forcing Rosemary Nick to open her property to the public because the government believes there is a burial site on her property. Todd, your firm represents Rosemary Nick in this case, and you've asked the Supreme Court to throw out a 1980s-era case that requires ex exhaustion of takings claims in state court before a property owner can bring suit in federal court. The case was initially argued the first week of the term before Justice Kavanaugh was confirmed, and it was re-argued this week. So you were in the courtroom. What were the main takeaways from the argument? Uh, I think uh, our main takeaway is that uh, no justice was defending the opinion of Williamson County, which is the case we've expressly asked the Supreme Court to overturn. Uh, there may be a couple of justices who want to retain that result through other means or are willing to live with it anyway, but no one was defending the constitutional analysis of that decision. So so that gives us a lot of optimism. Uh, the, the normal 
Um, it's a little heavier burden, of course, to get them to overturn uh, prior precedent. You not only have to prove that it was wrong, you have to establish that it was unworkable to many justices. We think we've done that, too. But the biggest hurdle is to convince a majority of justices, and maybe more, uh, that the prior opinion was wrong. Mm-hmm. So any insight to where Kavanaugh might be? Uh, you know, of course, he he's the only... Uh, he could be this decisive vote here, uh, since it seems likely that, you know, if there were five votes somewhere else before, that the the court would have already ruled on the case. So, uh, what do you think? Where's Kavanaugh? Well, uh, I would uh, tell SCOTUS one on one listeners they might want to look at uh, uh, Ilya Soman's post on the Volokh conspiracy uh, because he focuses on Kavanaugh's questions. But uh, Ilya, uh, as much as I love him, is a pessimist. So he's always uh, <laughs> sees things in pessimistic terms. And and I don't uh, quite see uh, as much to fear from Kavanaugh's lines of questioning as um, Soman does. But one of the things that uh, Kavanaugh asked Noel Francisco, uh, who was arguing 10 minutes of, of our side's time, also arguing to overrule uh, Williamson County, um, was he asked uh, the Solicitor General, uh, don't you think that state courts can fairly adjudicate um, uh, taking clause claims, which, uh, you know, some could take as a, uh, a criticism of the our position that there should be a federal court access. Um, but the reason I don't put a lot of stock in that is that he and Justice Alito uh, both then uh, asked a similar question of the Commonwealth attorneys' uh, uh, argument. Uh, you know, why do you really want to stay in state court? What do you? Why don't you want to be in the federal court? So it was, if anything, a devil's advocate mm-hmm. uh, type of question. Um, I, I think the, maybe the most significant uh, question from Kavanaugh reflect his interest in the Solicitor General's alternative solution um, to allowing federal court access. It's a, a little bit technical, but it involves uh, a 1331 federal question jurisdiction rather than 1983 jurisdiction, which is the more obvious uh, hook, uh, we believe, for federal court. Uh, jurisdiction. But we would be delighted <laughs> that Kavanaugh would vote to overturn Williamson County. Uh, if there is a split uh, on on the right cause of action to bring in federal court, uh, we could uh, likely uh, you know, be happy with whatever outcome. Um, but uh, I, I, I think that Kavanaugh, to, to sum up, I don't think Kavanaugh was uh, really clearly indicated um, uh, which way you vote, and I think that was the assessment of um, SCOTUS blog's analysis as well, but uh, uh, we certainly don't see any reason uh, for pessimism in, in his questioning. So of the other members who, you know, this was the second time they heard the arguments, did, did you see any shifts in any of the justices um, some who might be more sympathetic to overturning Williamson County this time around? Um, I didn't see any a significant shift, except perhaps that there was a, a little less uh, questioning of the constitutional basis of the original Williamson County decision. So I think we did make progress, and that's one reason I'm uh, more optimistic and, and my colleagues are 
a more optimistic. First, we're, I think, a little more optimistic just that they granted re-argument, which uh, at a minimum means they're concentrating on what's a complicated area of the law. Um, but uh, I think that, you know the justices that seem to want to uphold the result were stretching. Uh, you know, Kagan, um, uh, I think, was uh, you know stretching to see if there was some way of um, overturning what's been referred to as the catch-22 result. That if you are forced to go through state court uh, proceedings, as uh, many of our clients have. Uh, if you attempt to go uh, back into federal court, uh, the Supreme Court's uh, response under San Remo Hotel was, no, that's precluded. You've already had a full and fair chance under the full faith and credit clause. So uh, it was interesting to us that these other justices, um, or that the justices were sort of focusing on how to write the opinion, uh, uh, and Breyer's concern for the practical um, uh, result, um, which is not really a legal argument um, against what we are seeking, but more of an argument, I suppose, just to leave well enough alone. So as a member of Rosemary Nick's legal team, would you say you're feeling more confident after this second oral argument? Yes, I think for the two reasons um, that I previously mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, one that we even had a second <laughs> yeah. argument. Um, I think there are many, many lawyers who said, oh, if I only had a second chance, I could clarify this, I could clarify that. Uh, <laughs> we not only had a second argument, but the court actually asked for extra briefing. Mm-hmm. So we had a second opportunity to brief um, some of the issues. Um, but I'm also pleased that uh, Calvin all will participate in the uh, decision that we, uh, since we lost uh, below, um, uh, we won't lose on a 4-4 tie. So moving on, the Tennessee Wine and Spirits case was argued the same day, and I want to get your thoughts on that. By way of background, this is a case challenging Tennessee's two-year residency requirement for anyone seeking a license to sell alcohol in the state. Now, the 21st Amendment gives states broad authority in the area of regulating alcoholic beverages, but the Dormant Commerce Clause prevents states from passing laws that discriminate against out-of-state retailers or otherwise unduly burdening interstate commerce. Total Wine is one of the challengers in in this case, a nationwide chain, and uh, that company argues that the state, Tennessee, uh, has never asserted anything more than an economic protectionist rationale for its residency requirement. And a little fun fact here about Total Wine, uh, its its owner, David Trone, recently won a seat in Congress that is at issue in another Supreme Court case, the Maryland gerrymandering case, that the court's going to hear in March. So uh, two David Trone cases at the Supreme Court in one term. But anyway, back to Tennessee Wine and Spirits. Todd, how do you think the argument went? Oh, I, I think at, at a minimum it was very ably arg- argued for those of SCOTUS 101 uh, groupies who are oral argument aficionados. Um, uh, you know, Shai uh, Beveretsky for the uh, evil um, uh, uh, association that was trying to defend the Tennessee statute. <laughs> I say evil because uh, uh, so that all your listeners know uh, which side I think should prevail, but he did a very able job. Uh, as you know, he, this was his 10th argument and, uh, you know, he's, uh, spoken at our, uh, Supreme court preview events, uh, including recently, but the, the main, uh, the only advocate, uh, uh, by the way, Shea's time was divided with the, the Illinois solicitor general. 
who did a, a fine job as well. But Carter Phillips, I think this was his 85th argument, and he <laughs> is a very suave um, oral advocate, as as many of your listeners know. Um, but this is also a case that both uh, nerd lawyers should love, uh, even if you aren't a, a wine aficionado, but um, if you are, it's, it's even more intriguing. Um, there are a lot of subtleties and complexities as to what the repeal of prohibition, uh, which is the 21st Amendment, um, means. And uh, this is another case where it wasn't entirely clear uh, which way uh, the court was going to go. Um, but uh, the justices seemed very well prepared and, and um, you know, sort of fairly, with these able advocates, um, fairly pointing out uh, where the problem with each side seemed to be. Now, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch have both noted concerns about the validity of the Dormant Commerce Clause. Did that come up at all during the argument? Uh, no, it didn't, but let me. Uh, there's a, a likely reason for that, and that is there are two grounds uh, to strike down uh, Tennessee's statute. Uh, the, the main one that was discussed was whether the Dormant Commerce Clause um, uh, survives or is an overlay uh, that prevents uh, states that would otherwise be free to regulate alcoholic beverage uh, distribution in their state. Um, in, in other words, the, the states under the 21st Amendment, this was, you know, Carter Phillips' uh, position, are, are certainly free to prohibit alcohol consumption altogether or certainly the transportation of, of all alcohol, but they can't violate other provisions of the Constitution. And there was an agreement that, for example, they can't um, prohibit uh, beer or wine sales to whites or African-Americans. Um, the question is whether the Dormant Commerce Clause um, also prevents um, regulation that has a effect to discriminate against uh, out-of-state residents, or in this case, new residents uh, to Tennessee. And you know, the main uh, challenge was to a durational residency requirement. But the reason why um, that's not a concern for those of us that hope the regulation is struck down is that um, the other party challenging it was represented by the Institute for Justice, and that was uh, Doug and Mary uh, Ketchum, who moved to Tennessee to operate a wine store, and they focused on the uh, why it violated the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment, and it, it does. Uh, and those are, uh, are concerns that Thomas and Gorsuch are much more uh, likely to uh, to accept uh, the Cato brief, uh, Amicus brief that was filed in the case, pointed out that both clauses, uh, uh, the dormant commerce clause or that that doctrine, um, uh, and the privileges or immunities clause, uh, both supported the uh, same conclusion. Well, I guess we will have to wait to see what happens in this case and in the Nick case, but we'll expect opinions uh, one way or the other by the end of June. All right, Todd, let's turn to your career and talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that you've done. So you clerked for Judge Edith Jones on the Fifth Circuit. Tell me about Judge Jones. 
Well, I'm glad to do so. And as your listeners know, she's a very influential judge whose uh, dissents or dissents from denial in the Fifth Circuit are often um, uh, a strong ground for assert uh, grant and 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 for the Supreme Court to to adopt her reasoning. Um, but I'll concentrate on what some of your listeners um, may not know, uh, and that is that she's a very uh, hardworking judge. He impressed all of his law clerks. We uh, sometimes felt ashamed. There were three law clerks during the era that I clerked. This was 30 years ago. I'll admit <laughs> how old I am. I just I just look very young. Um, uh, she would. Um, give us the sort of um, uh, assignments, but we noted that she would draft as many opinions as all of us combined, and then she would edit and correct all of our opinion drafts. So, uh, you know, she's a, a very hard worker, um, but she also has a great sense of humor. Um, she was a very supportive um, uh, boss who really cared about uh, her law clerks and, and developing her law clerks. So it was uh, a fabulous clerkship. And so I'll mention uh, one other bit of trivia um, uh, that also is possible since I clerked for her so long ago. She has extended an offer to my daughter, who's a second year uh, Scalia Law School student. Uh, obviously, my daughter uh, excitedly accepted that clerkship, so she will also. Um, uh, be mentoring uh, my daughter uh, in the uh, in a year and a half. That's great. Two generations of Gaziano law clerks for Judge Jones. That's wonderful. So you've worked in a variety of capacities throughout the federal government. You worked in DOJ's Office of Legal Counsel. You were a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Uh, you were also chief counsel for a House subcommittee. What has been your favorite government job? Uh, well, it's interesting that you didn't include my uh, clerkship for Judge Jones. Uh, do you not consider the judiciary a government job, or is it? Oh, I, I do. You can include that one as well. <laughs> well, I think many many former law clerks will will say that that was their sort of more, most formative and 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 probably also most fun job. I would certainly say that. But but I'll I'll, I'll answer your original question too. I. I think the Office of Legal Counsel is my second favorite uh, job. Um, and I'll note that uh, the other government positions I had, I was more senior. Maybe I had more responsibility. Um, but as most people who worked in the Office of Legal Counsel will often um, concur, uh, it's a very special office. Um, you can act in part as a internal court uh, since you're often um, asked to opine and the decision of the office uh, in deciding a uh, dis- legal dispute within the executive branch is the final uh, determination. Um, uh, but you also act as a lawyer advising the White House counsel, uh, other cabinet secretaries, and other components in the Department of Justice. So particularly for a young lawyer like me when I was just an attorney advisor, um, I learned how to be a lawyer, how to practice law um, from the deputies and assistant attorney general who ran the office. So in addition to government circuit service, you've also worked in the private sector and in the nonprofit world. So which is the most fun? Uh, nonprofit is easily the most fun. <laughs> um, uh, 
in part because I get to work with uh, people like uh, you, Elizabeth, um, and all of uh, my colleagues here at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Um, but I'm reminded whenever I'm asked that uh, of the trade-off. Um, sometimes uh, it's easy to be a little bit jealous of some friends and classmates who make a lot more money. Um, <laughs> and I'm reminded of a uh, chapter uh, from a book that David Brooks published. Many of your listeners may know, a um, little bit dated now, uh, but it's called Bobos in Paradise. And he writes about the um, status income, income status disequilibrium. Um, very funny chapter. I think many of your listeners can uh, relate to if they uh, haven't read the book. Um, how you know people in the big law firms or big corporate jobs um, are a little jealous of their think tank brethren who uh, I think in the chapter appear on Nightline <laughs> and you know write New York Times op-eds. Um, but then sometimes it's a a little bit easy for us to. Um, be a little jealous when we go to their houses and we see their, you know, tennis courts and swimming pools and, <laughs> you know, uh, an expensive place to live in this area. Um, and so uh, people in nonprofits uh, have to take nonprofit salaries. But uh, as far as just fun, um, I, I think it's um, it's, you know, what we do at Pacific Legal Foundation is we sue the government all day. And that's our only, uh, uh, the only client we sue. And it's fun to go in every day and sue the federal government or sue the state government. What could be more fun than that? So what advice do you have for law students or young lawyers, uh, such as your, your daughter will soon be, uh, just starting out in their legal careers? Well, I, I do remember something Judge Jones uh, told us once. I, I already, you know, mentioned how hard she works. And uh, she was very well regarded even in those days. Shortly after I clerked for her, she was interviewed by uh, George Herbert Walker Bush for the seat that uh, it was either going to be her or Souter, and he made the wrong choice and chose Souter. <laughs> uh, but, but she was always very humble about her own um, ability, even though she was so highly regarded. And she told me there's no substitute for hard work. Now, I think that's true, uh, whether it is the nonprofit world, um, uh, whether it's uh, private practice, uh, and no matter how smart you are, uh, you're gonna, if you've risen to this level, there are plenty of other smart people. And um, fortunately or unfortunately, uh, the amount of work you do uh, uh, will, will often make or usually make the difference. So one final question, something we ask all of our guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Uh, I think it would be Taft. And uh, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't listened to all of your podcasts to know how many other of your guests have identified Taft. But um, We've had a few, working. but not, it's not that common of a pick. Okay. Well, well, for me, he just served in so many different capacities. Of mm -hmm. course, he's the only justice to have been a president, and he was chief justice. Um, and there are a lot of machinations that went into his appointment. But 
Um, I think some of his opinions, like Myers versus the United States and the um, appointments clause, was was certainly um, informed by his uh, service as president. But he was also Secretary of War. He was the Governor General of the Philippines. He was a Solicitor General fairly early in his uh, career before he was appointed to the Sixth Circuit. He he sort of did it all. Um, and uh, at sort of every level, uh, I think he distinguished himself. So I think it'd be fun to ask him some of these questions you've been asking. You know, which was your favorite job? I think biographers <laughs> say he always wanted to be on the Supreme Court, yeah. and his happiest jobs were the Sixth Circuit and the uh, Supreme Court. Um, but to get him to explain why, I think, would be interesting. And, you know, to talk about his his on-again, off-again relationship with Teddy Roosevelt uh, would be a uh, very interesting. Um, obviously, he had a, a falling out uh, in the election uh, where Teddy Roosevelt ran as a spoiler, but they made up for it shortly before Teddy Roosevelt's death. Um, so I, I think that would be a, a fascinating experience. Definitely sounds like it. Well, Todd, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you again for uh, having me, and uh, uh, great uh, uh, Happy New Year to all SCOTUS 101 listeners. (laughs) Take care. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Silly SCOTUS edition. All of these questions come from a very enjoyable book I have on my desk here at, at work called The Secret Lives of the Supreme Court, What Your Teachers Never Told You About America's Legendary Justices. And Jason is in the hot seat. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) Okay, first question. Which justice was inducted into the National Cowgirl Hall of Fame? Hmm. I'd like to say it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about that. But think about perhaps a justice who exemplifies the pioneer spirit of the American West. Um. I'm actually blanking on her name. <laughs> uh, give me a little bit about her. <laughs> uh, well, she was the first woman justice. Is that not correct? That is correct. So I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. It was Sandra Day O'Connor. That's it. <laughs> in 2002, she joined the Pantheon of Legends in the National Cowgirl Hall of Fame, including Annie Oakley, Patsy Cline, and Laura Ingalls Wilder. Next question. Which justice was known to watch a soap opera every day in his chambers? And this, uh, I'll go ahead and give you a hint because, you know, I think you need more than that. This was uh, depicted in a 2013 TV movie, Muhammad Ali's Greatest Fight, which was about Ali's refusal to report uh, for induction to the military uh, during Vietnam. And that culminated in a Supreme Court case. And this justice, who was a big fan of soap opera, uh, of a particular soap opera, um, was recused from from the case. Hmm. I actually don't know this one either. Well, that's okay. It was Thurgood Marshall, (laughs) and apparently he was a big fan of Days of Our Lives. And, you know, I really would have loved to know what what his thoughts would have been about the episode when Marlena was possessed by the devil. Uh, But, of course, that happened in in the mid-90s after after Justice Marshall had had passed away. You know, uh, uh, shout out to my mom who has been watching Days of Our Lives for my entire life and probably long before that. (laughs) I watched it uh, every weekday during college. (laughs) Okay, third question. 
which chief justice wanted to institute a traditional British judicial dress code for the court, including wearing a powdered wig. Now, I would note this is a 20th century chief justice. Oh, not an early one. <laughs> I was going to say John Marshall, perhaps, but uh, that seems a bit uh, early for the 20th century. Uh, it wouldn't be John Roberts by chance, would it? <laughs> Recent change up at the at the Supreme Court. <laughs> no, it was uh, it was Chief Justice Warren Burger, who was the chief from 1969 to 1986, uh, and he allegedly said that the justices should be in a wig and gown, and that they had been cheated out of it by Thomas Jefferson, who had ardently opposed the ceremonial hairpiece worn by the British jurists. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fourth and final question, which retired justice, who is an ardent Shakespeare fan, presided over a mock trial to determine whether Hamlet was legally insane at the time he killed Polonius. Wow. You know, these questions are pretty funny, but uh, they're more <laughs> difficult, especially when you're in the hot seat. I feel the pressure here. Okay. So he's a bit of an academic and he's retired but he's still around. Um, is it Kennedy yes, by chance? Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was Anthony Kennedy, and the trial was conducted at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, uh, no relation to Anthony Kennedy, the other Kennedy family, um, here in Washington. And the jury deadlocked 6-6. Okay. Yeah. Well, Jason... These were, you know, these were really digging into uh, in, into history, but I think you did a pretty good job. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating if you enjoy listening. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can also email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right, and if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today.